This is episode 93 of Hublogical Highlights. I am Ben Marshall and co-hosting as always is uh, Tom Major. And this episode we have something all to do with tortoises. And I suppose tortoise uh, sociality, interaction, that sort of stuff. Yeah, or lack thereof in some or cases. Or lack thereof, yeah. Yeah, or, or ambivalence. Yeah, so a um, couple of papers. One about tortoises and their... I guess it's a bit about their cognition and what they think about as babies and what affects how they behave in some small way. And then, yeah, onto a sort of more traditional bread and butter for the podcast type of paper about tortoise movements in uh, Southeast Asia, in Thailand specifically. So, yeah, it should be quite cool. We've, we seldom cover tortoises. I think the last time we covered tortoises was when we were doing those papers about um the dogs hunting for the tortoises as part of conservation not to was eat, it that long to... ago yeah it's been a while since we've covered tortoises on the podcast to be honest i feel like tortoises are quite underrepresented not only by us but also generally speaking it seems like you see less about tortoises than other animals but maybe that's just because there are fewer tortoises we should be able to actually uh work that out pretty pretty easily right we roll roll on to the lovely little review we did of uh herpetological home range papers we broke things down uh by by clade let's have a look total number of studies tortoises were the second most studied clade oh so in terms of space use nicely studied yeah and second most tracked individuals as well well that just goes to show that what i said is complete garbage i mean i i think the issue is uh, they're easier to track, so they're more likely to be represented in specifically home range slash tracking studies. So what you're saying might not be complete nonsense. Might not. And, and also they are, their range covers like wealthier countries quite a lot of the time. There's tortoises in America, there's tortoises in Europe. Yeah, yeah. There are only 300 species of tortoise. And also I think we have a slight uh, bias towards doing snakes and lizards. Yeah, massively so. I mean, I, I think that's, yeah. <laughs> there might be 300 species of... No, there's 49 species of tortoise, and I think then the rest are turtles. So maybe 250 species of turtles. Oh, but so, yeah, yeah. That's, that's grouping in, like, terrapins and things like that, isn't it? As, as quote-unquote turtles. Yeah, the swimmy ones, as well as yeah. the ones with the uh, elephantine legs. <laughs> as they say about land-dwelling tortoises. So yeah, uh, not to get bogged down in all that nonsense, but yeah, we're talking about tortoises. I incorrectly stated they're underrepresented in the literature. It's actually just because we don't really like them that much that we don't talk about them. <laughs> that is, I don't think it's a case of not liking them. It's no, just we like some other things more. Yeah, no, I mean... Plus we've got to yeah. cover like frogs and other like non-reptiles and things, it, you know. That reminds me, it has been a little while since we saw a paper with frogs with backpacks on. Yeah, I don't know how prominent those are, to be fair. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. not something we looked at. Definitely harder to do. Little backpack radio tra radio tracking kits. We did one, I remember. They were living in that cast environment in a creek bed. I can't remember what the species was. Anyway, anyway, it doesn't matter. Let's get on to tortoises, which is what we came here to talk about. Specifically, um, well, yeah, tortoises and face-like stimuli. So this is the first paper. Versace, Domini and Stancher, 2020. Early preference for face-like stimuli in solitary species as revealed by tortoise hatchlings. Published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America, which you can 
handily abbreviate to Pinasua. <laughs> of course. <laughs> what a, how convenient. Uh, so the premise for this work is that some animals like faces, uh, or at least face-like configurations of blobs. So humans, monkeys, and chicks all prefer to direct themselves towards vaguely face-shaped images when given the choice between a few options. Presumably gallus gallus, like regular jungle fowl chicken chicks. Just chickens, yeah, just the bog-standard, run-of-the-mill chicken. Um, And this makes sense because we are social species. Um, We have a lot to learn and understand from the faces of other animals. You know, there's obvious benefits to looking at other human faces. We are communicating all the time. You know, we collaborate on stuff. There's a good reason why we would do that. But the research team who produced this piece of work were curious to see whether that effect would also be prevalent in tortoises, which are solitary animals and haven't had any parental care in their lineage for at least 30 million years. So, yeah, they are precocial, right? They're, they're what? Precocial? Precocial. Is Get that, up and go. That... Yeah. Ah, oh, yes. As yeah. opposed what to altricial. Yeah, yeah, because they need help from Al. Learning all the time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you've got these solitary animals, which are definitely solitary. Do they also like going towards faces? They, they conducted this research at this place called the Fondazione Museo Civico Rovirito in Italy, which is in uh, Rovirito. Um it's a bit unclear in the paper where the tortoises actually came from. Um, they're not, they don't state whether it was a captive population or not. I'm imagining that they're probably captive animals because they've got lots of different species and the species are from quite a broad distribution. Um, the species they actually have, they're all baby tortoises and they had species from uh, Testudo Gres. Greca, which is the Greek tortoise, or is it Gracia? I don't know. Greek tortoise. Uh, Testuda hermini, which is Herman's tortoise. Horsefield eye, which is the Russian tortoise. Marginata, which is the marginated tortoise. And then they also had a group which were hybrids between Greek and marginated tortoises. And yeah, they wanted to see if they were curious about faces. So they had these eight different images of blobs, which are sort of typically used in these kinds of studies on animals and whether they like faces. So they're not, it's not... It's not a photograph of a face that they're going towards. No. It's not a photo of no. a human face. It's not just like one of the researchers grinning that they're going towards. It's um, a face in its kind of crudest possible form. It's two dots above one dot, right? And they're sort of sp- yeah. separated into a triangle. Yeah. On, on, a, on a sort of oval shape, it's worth mentioning. That's very true. Yeah, yeah. the ovalness is a key thing. Yeah, they're, so, more, yeah. More, they're closer to like a, a snowman face without the mouth and anything right <laughs> that's yeah that's what we're yeah, talking yeah. about it's With real real dot. bare bones yeah it's your it's your most basic face if you had very simple image recognition software um it would probably recognize it as a face that's what it's looking for right the two dots and then one dot um but surprisingly i mean they did a bunch of uh experiments where the tortoises and so each baby tortoise was tested once um each tortoise was put into an arena with two different images and the images were reproduced twice in the arena so two corners had one image and two corners had the other image the tortoise was placed in the center given a bit of time to look around and decide which way to go and then whichever way the tortoise walks whichever image it walked towards was counted as a hit for that image 
Yeah, and it's what did they have? One hundred and thirty-five tortoises in total. I feel like they had yeah. a, they had a decent number. I mean, oh no, sorry, one hundred and thirty-six. But a split between these different um, setups. So you had the classic face, two dots, and then a dot below for a mouth or nose or whatever you're talking about. And then you're comparing it to ones which are distinctly unface-like. I suppose would be the way of describing them. So yeah. things like the upside upside down face, one that's uh, four dots in a in a square, things with slight different offsets or, or different arrangements, some in a direct column. Um, yeah, just a bunch of other sort of commonly used yeah. blob, simple blob shapes. Right. Which, um, well, you say commonly used, but they're they're sort of standardised and used in other um, th- those other attacks that you mentioned. The um, you monkeys know, and uh, humans. Uh, chickens, and chickens and, and monkeys and other things, right? It, it's, <laughs> it's a it's a semi standardized, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> those those other attacks, are <laughs> just that it was this semi standardized. You know, it's a semi standardized way of doing it. So you've got a decent comparison to these other attacks to see if tortoises are better or worse, or not better or worse. I think. <laughs> no, that's what we're discovering. Whether they're better or worse than yeah. humans, can they compete? Can they compete or do... Well, not really. It's more just like, do they look at faces? Do they like faces? Do Um, they have an affinity for something which is the most pared down sort of version of a face you can imagine? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what did they find out? Well, they were attracted to faces, so it seemed, from uh, from the study that was conducted. Yeah. The majority of tortoises went towards faces over the other options they were presented with. And they also seemed to prefer things which were top heavy to things which were bottom heavy. So if there was a set of blobs where there was more blobs on top than on the bottom, that was also better than if there was more blobs on the bottom than more blobs on the top. Mm -hmm. But the main thing that they stress is that these face-like stimulus were preferentially selected by the tortoises. They were just like, yeah, we're going to go to those faces in more cases than they didn't. Uh, it was something like, what was it? Um, 70% of tortoises, which is 16 out of 23, went to the face over asymmetrical blobs. Um, and Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're looking at stuff from like 60% up to 75% for, for the different uh, comparisons between a face-like one and a non-face-like one. Like, yeah. they're not... Um, they're not sort of blow your socks off. Oh my gosh, they they only went for the faces, but it's a pretty decent percentage, and they're covering a decent number of individuals too, and several different species. I mean, not all species took part in all the different tests they did, all the different comparisons, but similar sort of patterns yeah. were seen in all of the species. I think would be fair to say, apart from maybe a couple of instances of uh, Herman's Herman I, not. Not going for the face as often as some of the others, maybe. I don't know. It's it's pretty hard to compare between the species because of the the way the trials are split up. You know, each species only got quite a, a few trials, so it's a yeah, bit well, it's a bit much to ask. Yeah, and so I think, um, well, you were saying before we recorded that that's a bit of a limitation to this study. Yeah, well, I I think it, I think potentially there's. The tests they did were a little bit generous in terms of identifying that they do, uh, they do feel this affinity towards faces than not, because they're treating them 
all these all these samples as independent. Every tortoise has its own independent choice, and off they go. But they're not accounting for this this source of um, variation or non-variation, I suppose, because you if you're just grouping all these together and treating them like they were equally as independent, you're missing that you've got them from different species. Yeah. Um, so, so I would have. I don't know. So I, the, I, what, what you're saying is that basically in this paper, they treated all the tortoises as one sort of entity when they were doing these tests, right? So they tell you there's five different species groups, but then essentially they just pour them all into a big bucket, mix them all up and then test them. And then they treat them as if they're the same. When in actual fact, it could be that, I mean, you mentioned Herman's tortoise there. Perhaps yeah. Herman's tortoises don't have this affinity for faces, but Horsefield's tortoises do, Russian ones, you know, Um and that would be missed in the way that they conducted this experiment. Yeah, I mean, the, the issue is is it's going to make it seem, or at least I, I think this is what it would end up doing, is making it seem like the results are more certain than they are because there's basically un, uh, unaccounted for variation there, this variation between species, and that all your samples from one species potentially are more likely to be more similar than from another. Um and you do have a slight issue with the sort of balancing of sampling as well. So, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a it, bit of a shortcoming. And it is um, a shortcoming. It's not like a sink to paper sort of thing, but it's just something to be aware of. W- yeah, with the way it. they've done their stats, is is it might not be as sure a thing as as what the stats is sort of suggesting. Yeah, it's a bit of a mishmash of stuff. They treated all tortoises as if they're just tortoises. Um, that said, you know, they did they did find this result, which, you know, taken at face value is extremely interesting. Um, well, yeah, taken at face value and taken at this sort of population level thing as, as sort of okay or not as that is, what, what are we talking in terms of overall numbers? We've got this 136 tortoise, um, tortoises tested and the vast majority of them are going towards the faces. If you, if you sort of ignore the variation within the what's uh, what's presented in contrast to the face and ignore the difference between uh, populations of tortoises, you, you know, you, you still have that, that overall majority, which is definitely interesting. Yeah, yeah. And um, so we mentioned at the beginning, they've, you know, other researchers have observed this attraction to faces in social animals like humans, monkeys and chicks. But those are species which require parental care. So it's previously been assumed that this adaptation was important for helping animals respond to their parents or other members of the same species. However, now that tortoises do it as well, it kind of shows that there's a solitary species that also demonstrates this affinity for faces. And that suggests that either it evolved for another reason or... um, there's some kind of common ancestor who had parental care back in the mm-hmm. day, I suppose, which isn't something they mentioned in this paper. But to me, that seems like a possibility. Like maybe there was a common ancestor that had parental care way back when that subsequently evolved into reptiles and birds. Um, you know, I think that's an option, but it's not an option that's explored. What do you, what do you think about that? Um, well, that there's some sort of ancestral reason. Yeah, like they're for, saying it's been... Faces. I don't know. I'm... I find it a little bit tricky to uh, gauge what this really means. Um, Because, like, affinity towards things, we have this... We've we've brought it up in the podcast many times with uh, primates and snakes. 
and there's a like heightened sensitivity to things that are snake shaped you know a, a quicker reaction time and ability to de- detect them in in contrast to a like camouflage background or something like that over other shaped animals yeah yeah and i wonder whether the face and i wonder whether the face recognition thing is less about sort of social care uh stuff and more about um a heightened sensitivity to detecting eyes and a mouth just because other animals it, it, in general yeah because it doesn't necessarily have to be a positive thing right that heightened sensitivity could be a you know detecting a face a predatory you know predator or something like that right so i don't know that's got me got me slightly thinking the other thing with the sort of increased affinity towards top heavy stuff makes me think uh shelter and you know under trees under rocks stuff like that something that is you know something that is blocking light a darker area on top a darker area above um especially for young tortoises avian avian predators are a big deal for young tortoises so i'm sort of thinking okay maybe it's not a face shape thing as much as a uh a light finding shelter sort of thing i yeah, that's probably true, a bit more of a stretch because of the 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 setup of them, and you would have expected things. They had a an asymmetric um, an asymmetric test where they had the two dots on top, but both the two dots were offset to the side. They still liked it. They still liked the face one over it, but so that sort of weakens weakens you know what I'm what I'm saying there somewhat. Yeah, it's I would a cool have point about the top two things on top and underneath all the other things in nature that that could represent. And yeah, obviously, yeah. yeah, avian predators we know are a thing. It's the murderous crows that come and eat these chicks or ravens, wasn't it that we were talking about? Ravens previously. before, yeah, yeah. Ravens but I mean, the, 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 the classic course. images of little sea turtles going down to the shore and getting picked up by gulls and crabs and you name it. Mate, I suppose they are born into the wild them. west, right? If they start going towards faces, they're going to get rocked by death. Right. But the other thing, the other thing, so we'd be like, oh, surprise, a non-social animal preferring faces. That's weird. I mean, they're not completely anti-social, are they? They still need to recognize each other. Yeah. Like, a lack of sociality is not a devoid of social interaction. And yeah. the other thing is, that I, I sort of question more is, do we actually know how non-social they are we're assuming that they're <laughs> the sort of lack of observed sociality is de facto very little sociality but i don't know how how fair is that with some of these tortoises have has enough work been done on really understanding their life you know their entire life so. history no, so. whether they whether they recognize mates and things like that i i'm not aware of any research but that doesn't mean it's not out there and if there no, is that yeah. lack of stuff then fine but I don't think it necessarily has to be a like a rearing thing, a, a rearing thing, or a high sociality trait. And I think that's what this paper sort of is more interesting. Is it could still be a useful thing to be able to do, even if you're not a hypersocial uh, species. I still like my idea that 300 million years ago there was some kind of, you know, swamp dwelling amphibian which descended into all the animals we have and that thing was looking after its babies and its little babies whatever they were you know i don't know what they would have been maybe like mm, 
you know what I'm saying. They're living in soup. And <laughs> They're living maybe... in soup. Little soup dwelling and <laughs> yeah. pseudo amphibians. <laughs> yeah. And maybe their mum was like really important to them. And, you know, they subsequently went on to evolve into all these species we know today. And they still have that little inkling yeah. about faces. But, yeah, that's far-fetched. And the reason they don't mention that in the paper is probably because there's good evidence for that to be nonsense. But one thing they do mention is that, and it kind of speaks to what you said about just generally finding resources, it might just be useful to spot other animals' faces because, you know, maybe you're a baby tortoise, you're walking around, you see another adult tortoise, you recognise its face. And what's it doing when well, it's munching on some strawberries? It's like, sweet, well, you found some strawberries now. It pays to recognise the face. Yeah, yeah. It seems it seems unfair to the tortoises, and there's always this thing. It's like it keeps up coming again and again. Oh, wait a second, animals know more about what's going on than we gave them credit for before. That always seems to be a trend. <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's very rare we're coming across papers like, oh, these animals were actually far stupider than we expected. There was one <laughs> instance that we've had a paper like that, and that was those iguanas not wanting to take part in that experiment. And that wasn't even a stupid iguana thing. That was lack of motivation, most likely. <laughs> yeah, they eat leaves. They don't need to open doors. It's not in their yeah. nature. So that was that was something. And Yeah. So I don't know. I, think I in feel short, like it's part of that same trend. Yeah. In short, this paper... Strong suggestion that baby tortoises like faces. Yeah. Take, you know, read into that what you will. Perhaps there's another reason. If you're sitting there listening to this and you think you've worked it out, there's a reason tortoises like faces that no one's mentioned yet here. And I mean, it's not to say it's a novel idea, but maybe. Then get in touch. It'd be curious to hear if anyone else has got a shout for this. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's an interesting... It's one of those studies that prompts more questions than it answers, but holy smokes, is, it was kind of needed to prompt those questions, I feel. Yeah, it's always cool when stuff like that happens anyway. It's just nice to know that these kinds of studies are going on and people are having these ideas and looking at tortoises a bit sideways, you know? Yeah, but I think also highlighting how seeing these things in context really helps. Because we don't... I, would like to have known more about where these tortoises came from, the sort of sampling efforts to, you know, how were these ones picked for the experiment, that sort of stuff. This paper's a little bit light on. Yeah, some you know. secrets kept, which maybe would have been better out in the open. Let's, um, cool. Well, let's move. Let's pivot from tortoises looking at faces to tortoises potentially interacting with other animals. This one, it's got Ben on it. So this is by Ward, Marshall, Hodges, Montano, Art Chowacom, Wengsathorn, and Strine, 2021. Nonchalant Neighbours, Space Use and Overlap of the Critically Endangered Elongated Tortoise, published in Biotropica. So, another one brand new this year. We, yeah, I mean, we were saying about it last episode that we'd get into more detail with tortoises. And here we are, more detail with tortoises. Same place, you know, more tortoises. <laughs> So uh, we're talking about Indotestudo elongata, the elongated tortoise. And this is a tortoise whose distribution spans India, Southeast Asia, Southern China. They grow to 30 centimeters long. Some would say 12 inches, heathens. And uh, yeah, they're quite a big tortoise, really. 3.5 kilograms as an adult. Um, and the shell is depressed. So they're kind of flat. Uh, not they're not that flat. They're not. Flat. You said it's they like grow up to thirty centimeters. Yeah, that's my intel. Where did you get that intel from? <laughs> Probably somewhere less reliable than when you're about to correct me from. Well, I mean, 
there wasn't a a tortoise tract in this paper that was less than thirty two centimeters. <laughs> but then that might be curved carapace length. If that's curved, oh, it is. Carapace it is. Length, it's curved carapace eat your length. Damn words. Yeah. Oh, I can't. I can't. Yeah, I can't. It's going to be less than that, isn't it? I don't know the straight carapace length. They were. They. It was measured. Uh, here we go. Um, it's in, it's buried in some supplementary material. I'm afraid. Oh, I see. No, yeah, you're <laughs> quite right. I can see. That. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, if you're finished splitting hairs, Ben, I am finished um, splitting hairs. Yeah. <laughs> Apologies. Yeah, so they grow. They grow to approximately thirty centimeters, or we you could say thirty six centimeters, maybe thirty eight centimeters curved carapace length. Um, so that gives you an idea. <laughs> and up to a couple of kilos. Yeah. They're so they're hefty. quite, you know, yeah. they're pretty stocky little creatures, aren't they, by all yeah. accounts? Um, and yeah, because the shell is more than twice as long as it is deep, because most, well, many tortoises are sort of almost um, sort of not round, but they've got a, a high carapace and a lo- as well as it is long. In these guys, they're very long, hence the name elongate tortoise. Um and females tend to be wider than males and more rounded. Males' tail is larger than the female. That's because they use it for sex stuff. And uh, yeah, like a lot of tortoises, the, the males have the concave plastron so they can sit on top of the females when they're mating. And there's like a little bit depression in their bellies so they can fit on more nicely. Yeah. And so the point of this study was to understand firstly the annual and seasonal space use of these tortoises so find how much space they actually inhabit and then look at whether or not tortoises were influenced by other tortoises that were around so you know are they attracted to or do they avoid other tortoises yeah i mean the idea was to sort of get a handle of how they're all living together because we're talking about quite a small protected area and you do have this sort of question over... I, I think we talked about it in in relation to some North American tortoises ages and ages ago, about all these tortoises being relocated to a protected area, like hundreds of them. And most of them died. And yeah, you just having this outrageous density of tortoises, but also this big question mark over whether, whether it was a particularly wise idea, because, you know, you're... you're Potentially over uh, uh, over stocking. That's not even the right term. But well, it pretty much is, really. I, I, mean, I guess in that context, I just hate that word used. <laughs> but yeah, you've overstocked too many individuals. Yeah, o- it's over the carrying capacity of the landscape, essentially. Yeah, you've got more tortoises than you have leaves for them to eat, basically. Yeah, and here we have a have a population in in northeast Thailand that seems to be doing all right. Like. You can go out and find tortoises. That's, it seems to be all right. It's well protected as well. And uh, yeah, try and get an idea of how they're interacting, how they're using the space that's shared with presumably a decent number of other tortoises. Yeah, and you mentioned we're in northeast Thailand. We're at Sakharat Biosphere Reserve where we both lived for a while and then you subsequently worked. And yeah, or d- still work in some capacity or no? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. So the tortoises that we're talking about, you mentioned it's Thailand. They're, they're spread across these two habitat types in Sakharat Ice Reserve. There's the dry evergreen forest, which is, you know, basically just a jungle, isn't it? It's not a rainforest, but it's, it's a jungle if you're in it. Yeah, in I a, mean, I suppose jungle, you would, if you picture a sort of jungle, a classic tropical jungle, but then you strip out a lot of that water, then you're looking at pretty much dry, dry evergreen forest. 
yeah. lot of lianas, yeah. uh, strangler figs, that sort of stuff. Yeah, you need a machete if you're not on the path. Yeah. And then you've got the dried pteracarp forest, which is slightly different. It's kind of these much smaller trees, um, pteracarp trees, um, a lot more homogenous, I think it's fair to say. And I would say so, these, yeah. Yeah, there's like these smaller, well-spaced trees, and then the ground story is bamboo grass, so it's like yeah. thick-leaved grass. Heavy, heavy coverage too. Like Yeah, like the floor. Can't you can't see the ground as you're walking through it sort of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, you know, you can trip over a tortoise very easily. Yeah. Um, and that is an environment which changes a lot because the, the grass is burnt once a year by local people and has been for a long, long time. Right, so. I think there's suggestions that it during a sort of natural cycle it would burn every sort of two to four years i think is what i've what i've heard um yeah other thing worth mentioning about it is actually i think one of the most threatened forest types in the world uh well to me it kind of it's up there sort of reminds me of like hay meadows right so yeah like oh hay meadows have declined 97 percent. it's like well we stopped producing hay so you know that's why it's, it's it's the kind of environment which requires management and requires management for a specific reason. And when human beings get tired of that idea, it starts to slowly dwindle. Yeah, potentially. I'm I'm not sure why dipterocarp is so rare currently. I I honestly don't know. I mean, it could be where it occurs. It just co-occurs in good places to live, potentially. Um, I also have a feeling that actually it's quite rare to begin with, it being dry but also tropical. Mm, um yeah so i don't know i don't know either way rare it's where the tortoises are hanging out they're yeah. you know bombing around in the long grass sneaking but hopefully rocks that gives, and logs you know yeah exactly hopefully that gives people an idea of what kind of environment to imagine when we're talking about these tortoises yeah yeah and so 17 individual tortoises were tracked this was radio telemetry so you know the classic radio kit sticker transmitter on the back of a tortoise with some kind of putty really easy to do yeah, and they, they glue it on, and the tortoise bum, sort of bumbles around for a year, and uh, people have the opportunity to track it over the course of that year. And they were tracked sort of about once a day? No, nah, once, once every two days. I think it was... Once a, every two days. Was it mean something like 70... No, even... I think it was once every three days, really. Um, right. If we're, be, if we're being strict about it. Uh, yeah, mean time of 71 hours. Right on. So, so every few days, yeah. the tortoises were tracked down. Their location was recorded. And yeah, um, similar to other papers we've been discussing recently, um, you know, dynamic Brownian bridge movement models to estimate the space use, distinct from home range, of each of these tortoises. And they were tracked like for a long time, right? It was averaging like... Uh, a year? A just year, up, just yeah. Just shy of a year, 320 days, something like that, I think it was. Yeah, 350 350 days Mate, yeah it's not much short of a year two days yeah so that's great you know tortoises were tracked and because of that lot because of those long tracking periods that gives you an opportunity to start thinking about whether or not seasonality has an effect on them well and that you're actually capturing something that is likely representative of their their space use um you know i, I was i was talking last episode and sort of mentioning i'll bring it back up this episode this this contrast between study site stuff uh, study period stuff you know there's space use and then the home range idea we do have another paper out looking at the home range stuff and just to offer you a contrast of how these two things differ what we what we report in this paper with space use just what we uh 
sort of infer within the study period, we're talking about them using a, a mean of sort of 26 uh, hectares. And that's what we're sort of basing all this, whether they're interacting um, with each other, whether they're using the same space. Based, you know, we're basing it upon these estimates, these sort of more conservative, just what happened between us taking data points. We've done the other one. We've, we've ran the, uh, the autocorrelated uh, kernels to try and get an idea of what space use these animals need over their entire lives, over the entire life stage. And I do have I do have those numbers to hand, I believe. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. Which so we've got this this twenty six hectares within the study, but home range, and this is sort of illustrating my point is it's predicting other areas they might be using or other space they require over a longer period of time of forty four forty five hectares. So you see, there is this this impact of just what you recorded during the study versus um, what you sort of extrapolate beyond the study, sort of trying to predict overall how much how much space they need. And those are two different measures uh, and pretty much tell you two different things. You know, one is trying to predict where they went when you weren't looking and the other is trying to get an actual idea of how much space they require, this, this spatial requirement idea. You know, mm. if you're <sighs> like designing a protected area or something like, okay, how much area does one tortoise need? Okay, this this much, 44 hectares on average. Questions over accuracy. You know, these things do come with pretty big variation. I mean, we had some individuals could need as little as three hectares, whereas our highest, highest estimates were hitting something like 400. So even with tracking them over an entire year, there's still a hell of a lot of uncertainty, but it's something to start from. <laughs> you know, I like the idea that that tortoise that only inhabited three hectares has just stumbled across the choicest shoots. Ever. Right. Yeah, but that's, that's precisely it. Then you start looking, okay, what's driving this amount of space they need? Is it a resource thing? Is it a, what we're talking about in this paper, needing to find other individuals potentially? Or are they being driven out of an area because of other individuals? Is there a competition, you know, uh, exclusionary sort of thing? Are they looking at each other's faces? <laughs> right. Are they going further to look for faces? Because they don't recognize anybody. Who knows? <laughs> but it's, it's trying to tease apart different drivers, but also get a decent estimate of what they might need from data which is okay it's decent durations but once every three days you know you're you are missing a decent amount of uh sort of fine scale movements we, again we talked last episode about how scale changes what you can infer from movement data and i think this is a paper that sort of you have to bear that in mind um a lot very prominently because we're we're dealing with movements collected every three days where did the tortoise go during those three days? Did it see other tortoises during those times? Is the scale that we're looking at the tortoises matching the scale, both both in time and space, of tortoises making decisions about where they're going or interacting with individuals, other individuals? Hmm. So it's, it's tricky. It's tricky because you don't know how the tortoise mind operates, but it's a little bit closer to, to getting towards that answer. It's 
don't know. It's, yeah. it's, best, it's best I can do. <laughs> well, it's the best, yeah. I mean, it's the best you can do with the information you've got, right? Like, everything's right. got limitations. So, and I mean, um, so where do you want to start? Do you want to talk about, you've, we've, obviously, we've mentioned their home range sizes, quite variable, but also, you know, relatively right. large. Um, well, and overlapping. I mean, we, we have some pretty considerable overlap with the tracked individuals. Again, worth mentioning, not a random sample. These guys were sort of picked up as they could because they're pretty hard to find in dense bamboo grass and stuff, and not super easy to uh, super easy to systematically trap. So what? Yeah, I mean, how do you bait a tortoise? It just eats leaves, so there's leaves leaves are plenty. I tell you what else it eats. Um, there's a short note that popped out uh, last year about an elongated tortoise attempting to eat a uh, a killback, a buff striped killback. In eastern Nepal, this poor little snake. There's there's a rescue center, it's a tortoise rescue center, and this poor little snake had fallen in one of the tortoise enclosures, and this elongated tortoise just starts going to town on it, trying to eat it. <laughs> it's just like Mate. this snake is fully alive. It's it's they 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 fished it out in the end and sort of cleaned up its wounds and stuff. But this tortoise was not having it, just going for it. Is there uh, any particular is there any red on that snake? I don't know what this snake looks like. Um, it is... Also, buff-striped keelback. What the hell? What snake is this? It's a buff-striped keelback. It's a, it's a snake that occurs in the pool. It looks to Amphiasma be about stellatum. Oh, okay. 40 yeah, centimetres, like pale like underbelly, uh, darker brown top with a yeah. very prominent orange stripe going down the, uh, down the length of it. Mm, orange no stripe. I think tortoises maybe think orange is a delicious colour. I mean, it's because it is. Yeah. So that's interesting. And I mean, yeah, I think to be honest, a lot of the time, if you're an animal that falls into an exhibit with a zoo animal, those things are looking to be entertained at all times. So um, we had one the other day, uh, an Escalapian snake made the incorrect decision of slithering through the aviary with all the African birds in, like superb starlings in there. Yeah. Um, mouse birds, you know, the ones that look like a little mouse. Um yeah, that thing got pecked up. It got killed. Yeah, so. you you hear about it quite a lot. I mean, uh, I remember reading papers about uh, captive lemurs, uh, you know, just going to town on any medium to small size vertebrate that came into their cage from chameleons. <laughs> yeah, to, just... Chameleons were the were the ones I was. Um, chameleons and amphibians were what I was sort of looking for. But holy smokes, don't no. <laughs> Yeah, it's not right, man. Yeah, don't don't stray into the exhibit because uh, you quickly become the main source of entertainment things. or yeah. extra extra uh, extra nourishment, I suppose. Yeah, vitamin so, supplement. Uh, so, getting back to the tortoises, they eat mostly leaves, and occasionally they'll try and eat a snake. Yeah, uh, or some bones, probably flowers and fruit and stuff as well, right? Yeah, Bugs. yeah, yeah. I think um, they're pretty they're pretty easy going. So uh, what were we talking about? We were talking about the overlap between their ranges. And yeah. you, you were mentioning the fact that they're not a random sample, which we, yep. you know, I think that comes up in most of these radio telemetry papers that we, we uh, talk about because <sighs> it's yeah, hard you to can find only get the animals. Yeah, you, you just don't have the time or the resources to just like search widely enough and thoroughly enough for animals. Um, what, what, how were it's, these it's tortoises rare. coming I think, in? I think you sometimes get some random sampling in... Uh, places that you can actually cap like like potentially water snakes, um, 
potentially rattlesnakes. I feel like there's been a couple done with with true random, um, but that's I feel like making use of hibernacular and and areas that they gravitate to. So it requires some prior knowledge a lot of the time. Right. But yeah. But how were these tortoises coming to the project? Were people... People just came across them. People just finding them. Yeah, non-random active surveys. Um, People coming across them when they're crossing the road, when the tortoise is crossing the road. Um, Just coming across (laughs) them while doing other field work and other studies. Tortoise stops to let you pass. Cheers, mate. Yeah. No, I mean, it it happens. You spot them crossing the road all the time. It's, it's, I remember seeing, yeah, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but I saw one once when I was out running out there. Yeah, they were about. It, wasn't, it was prior to this study taking place, so it wasn't any sort of calls to catch them. Also, I don't think it would have qualified as an adult. It's quite small. Mm. It was like sort of, sort of, um, I guess, grapefruit sized. <laughs> but flatter. But yeah, it, it's, a, it's a trick. Uh, finding animals is difficult and it it forces you to compromise the sampling design so there's not much you can do about that and so there was quite a lot of overlap between the ranges of these animals um did the what what did the resource selection function suggest about the sort of avoidance or keenness to be near each other yeah so a little bit of sort of explanation on what that's doing we have, let's let's say we've got tortoise A, yeah? And we've got tortoise A, it starts at point A, goes to point B, goes to point C. Can we call tortoise A Barry? All right, so we've got Barry. He's bumming along in the forest, and we want to see if Barry is following uh, tortoise B. Is tortoise B a male or female? I. It doesn't matter, because we compared all, all possible pairings regardless. Right. We'll yeah? call it Jean, because that's all right. So we've got Barry and Jean. We care about Barry's movements and where whether Barry is selecting locations that are closer to the gene or further away. That's how we're sort of gauging whether they're uh, showing sort of attraction or avoidance. We're comparing where Barry moved to a whole bunch of random points based on where Barry could have moved at every single step. Every time we recorded the animal, you got your random points, you got your known points where, where Barry went. But how do we how do we judge um, whether he's going towards where Gene is or not? Because we don't actually know where Gene is other than these points in time, yeah, for where she was at point A, point B, point C. So we talked about dynamic Brownian bridge movement models. We talked about that sort of random walk thing. Basically, for every time step or every uh, I can't remember what it was, like a week or several days, I think it was. We generated a... It was every seven points. Every seven points, so much longer than a week. Um, We generated this sort of heat map, essentially, of where Jean could have been. Yeah? Based on her movement data for that period of time. And then we can see if, okay, was Barry going towards points where Jean was more likely? Or was he avoiding those points and going towards areas where we weren't predicting Jean could have gone? you know, were less likely to have been. It's very cool. And you sort of build that up. You do all these comparisons against all these different individuals, whether their movements are tallying up where we sort of predicted the other individuals could have been. And that's sort of got our, got our picture of whether they're avoiding each other or attracted to each other. And I mean, it, it's it's pretty weak, I would say, <laughs> I would say overall. Um, I, I would, the attraction. The attraction's weak. 
any avoidance. Like, I would say that the stuff we found was pretty weak overall. Um, that there wasn't particularly strong attraction, but there wasn't particularly strong avoidance. We had most most pairings we compared. Most pairings we compared. Most pairings between Taurus movements and uh, this sort of predicted uh, area that Taurus could have been during that same same period of time um, didn't really show it either way. Um, I think the only one that's sort of more interesting was seeing how male tortoise movements tallied up with predicted female tortoise locations, and that we did see more instances of attraction than we did um, avoidance. We didn't see any instances of actual avoidance. We saw plenty of instances of sort of ambiguous neither attraction nor avoidance, but that was the only one that really really looked like there was more attraction going on than an avoidance, which, you know, makes you think what could be driving that sort of male to female uh, movement association, <laughs> movement attraction. What could it be? Right. So you you naturally think, okay, breeding activity, yeah? Male tortoises following female tortoises. So it would make sense that you could detect a greater amount of this attraction behavior, this this movement towards where we predicted our female tortoises to be in breeding season. When is breeding season for these tortoises? Well, thankfully, we had some data on that. We had observations, again, opportunistic, not systematically done, so got to be taken with a pinch of salt. But we basically know we, we saw tortoises uh, mating during this sort of hot season period, which is everything from like April to August. Quite a long period of time. So what we did was see if those attractions, you know, the movements that looked like they're heading towards females occurred more in closer proximity to those observations of breeding activity. Yeah, because you'd expect if it was driven by breeding, you would ex- sort of expect the attraction to ramp up during that time. But uh, didn't really see that. It, 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 wasn't, it wasn't particularly clear. That's not to say that that's not what's driving those movements. Because you remember me mentioning, you know, they're only being tracked once every three days. Hmm. So we're picking up this sort of overall attraction, potentially. But we're not picking up anything on a finer scale. Um, and we might need to be looking at more, you know, maybe 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 it comes out in daily movements. Maybe it's hourly movements that this this attraction versus avoidance actually changes. Um, mm. You know, it, it it's very broad scale, what we're looking at yeah, here. Yeah, it's the so kind of thing that GPS tags will be incredible for. It would be perfect. It would be absolutely perfect to get the... Because then you can even chop down the time frame of where the predicted uh, sort of female locations are too. You can get a better, more accurate gauge on that so everything gets better if you're if you're working with higher resolution data for something like this Mm. but i mean that's it's working within the limitations of the data what's interesting is it is at least suggestive that these animals aren't um or at least within the sample we have this non-random sample they're not excluding each other from areas and things like that they're not like fiercely territorial right not not that we could see because we've got this high uh, overlap and the space they're using 
and not a particularly apparent um, uh, avoidance of each other of movements as well. Um, so that's something. We also looked at uh, whether uh, whether avoidance or attraction was linked to carapace size with this idea of maybe smaller individuals are being pushed out by larger individuals. So maybe smaller individuals are avoiding larger individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, but didn't really see any patterns there either. So it's... The way I read it is there's no decent evidence for anything competitive uh, competitive exclusion or anything like that. It seems right. like they're just using the landscape as they're using the landscape with no real care for other individuals at this scale, apart from this sort of hint that maybe males are looking for females, even if we can't detect any seasonality, any seasonality in that uh, in that attraction. So you've got elongate tortoises in the jungle, in the dry dip terracot forest, just milling about, doing yeah. their thing. Not that fussed about other tortoises. And potentially uh, not reliant on a strong concentration of resources as well. Because I, mm. I would have thought if we had like a water body or something like that, you know, a... a Permanent water body, which was in a single location, you would spot um, an uptick in this attraction behavior. And it's not that they're attracted to each other, it's that they're attracted to a common resource that would look like they were using the same, you know, it would would show that they were attracted to each other. They're moving in the same areas, but Mm. um, it would have a different interpretation. I guess that's kind of your responsibility as a scientist. If you see that there's a, a draw to a particular area... Well, then you've got a new question on your hands, haven't you? Why you do. Is that? Yeah, I mean, we didn't see, I, we didn't see that. And plus, knowing the landscape, knowing the sort of dry diptera carp area they're in, the standing bodies of water tend to occur on top of rocks and things along those lines. They tend not to be there year round. They tend to come with rainfall, and um, although uh, we haven't been able to look into it specifically because of the sort of uh, limitations regarding tracking there is uh people got the impression from tracking these individuals that there is an uptick in movement around uh rainfall just after rainfall which might be going out and looking for these these fresh water bodies that appear and then disappear quite quickly so yeah it's 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 tricky to hammer down exactly what's driving it but there are suggestions that we have a little bit of seasonality and also a sort of using the landscape as they will at this scale. So there we have it. Testudo elongata, the elongated tortoise. Um, yeah, you know, relatively sizable home ranges of sort of between... Well, not Sorry, not home ranges. Jesus! Space use well, over can, the course of a year. Well, you can, you can say home ranges because we've done that in the other paper, in, in the but, preprint. Okay, but that's not what we're talking about here. But yeah, no. I appreciate you uh, throwing me a bone there. Yeah, between four and 55 hectares over the course of the tracking period yeah. of averaging a year. So yeah, quite a lot of space. They're bowling about. Barry's moving around. They're not necessarily fussed about each other. Pretty awesome. Pretty cool. Um, yeah, nice one. Really cool paper. Um, but still with this big question mark over whether this uh, interaction, this this attraction avoidance that, that we found, um, or lack of, I suppose, actually holds true at finer scales. Mm, yeah 
you know, it, it's it's a it's one thing not seeing it every three days, but like hourly stuff, you could be looking at a totally different pattern. Very cool, very cool, and uh, yeah, we're definitely going to revisit tortoises because um, we were sent a really cool paper uh, about actually about um, giant tortoises, um, which I think uh, we'll come back to and revisit because it's got GPS data and it looks really cool. Oh yeah, no, I, f- I think we should definitely cover that stuff because that sort of fills in some of the gaps that pains me about this paper. <laughs> yeah, 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 because it's just that finer scale get yeah. really into the nitty-gritty yeah, yeah. yeah so thank you seb for sending us that uh yeah sweet so let's move on to our species of the bi-week so this one is by david vogel Nguyen, all of powell's tiny ziggler and that's it a revision of the dark-bellied stream-dwelling snakes of the genus Hebeus, with a description of a new species from China, Vietnam, and Thailand, published in Zoo Taxa 2021. So, you know, 2021, we're pretty on the pretty on the button right now. Um, and yeah, this is this is actually a monograph. So, if it's you're interested, it's a hell of a monograph. Yeah, it's 61 pages of monograph. 61 pages, which. I'll be honest with you, when I see 61 in the pages, I looked at the thing and it was like page 1 to 61. You're just like, oh, okay. Oh, am I, am I going to, am I going to, I'm going to, I'm going to delve. And uh, I have to say, if <laughs> you have any it. interest in the genus Hebeus, it's freely available on ResearchGate, this paper. It will be literally the best thing you've ever read um, if you love Hebeus. I'm sure there's one or two of you out there. You know who you are. You're excited about Hebeus. <laughs> get, get on it. And uh, yeah, we, I mean, we're just solely focusing on the new species description. But yeah, it's an extremely thorough piece of work um, detailing the the various species and then how to delineate them in the genus Hebeus with some like upgraded information. And one of the upgrades to the information about the genus was that one of them's one of the populations is actually its own species. Um, mm-hmm. Fresh. Yeah. So they've described it. Um how do how, let's describe how it looks before we get into anything else shall we yeah i mean this is this is an outrageously gorgeous snake in my opinion uh we're talking about a very dark gray to near black uh snake that's about half a meter svl and all along the top of the body in two rows i think it is we've got these bright orange dots but they're kind of rough and the whole thing looks like it is charred like it looks like a burnt snake outrageous yeah it's a really cool looking thing and um you know it's not it's been known about in the literature people have been writing about it since the 1930s but it's uh not been given a proper species name until now so yeah previously it's been known as uh natrix modesta but yeah, they've they've given it its own name and they've called it, you mentioned it looks a bit burnt and they've actually called it yeah. Hebeus Igneous, which, which is, is pretty on point. Awesome. Yeah. So the specific nomen is the Latin adjective Igneous, which means in fire. And uh, it's because of the large, bright orange blotches on the forepart of the body. And they suggest the common name Fireback Keelback. Fireback Keelback. <laughs> fireback Keelback. <laughs> pretty cool name and uh where is this species found it's found in bit of bit of thailand bit of china 
Yeah, Yunnan province once again. How Yunnan. many times have we had a species of Dubai week which has originated in Yunnan? I'm pretty sure that is the cradle of all snakes. Um, it, it feels like it's every other episode. Isn't there evidence that the, it was around that area that vipers first evolved? I wouldn't be surprised. I think I, so. I don't, I don't honestly remember, but <laughs> it would make a lot of sense. I think so, yeah. Now, whether, the, the real interesting test is, you know, roll it down 15, 20 years. How many of these species will still be species and not re-synonymized or something? Well, who can say? I mean, really, yeah. who can say? Um, yeah, I don't know. Depends how... Uh, depends on the... Um, I guess it's the sort of trends, the changing trends in species delimitation. I don't know. Could could all change. I don't know. I feel like we're still in a big, like, descriptive phase right now where things are being split up a lot. Um, oh, for sure. But I'm I'm just... I'm just wondering. <laughs> I'm just wondering because there's so many species that co- that's coming out of these areas. Granted, there's... You know, there's a huge amount of diversity there. Well, presumably, there's a huge amount of diversity there. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But, I don't know. What else can we say about this snake, then? Uh, They don't know a huge amount about it, obviously, um, being as it's uh, only just been described. Um, Living near fast-moving streams in a sort of classic Natrix-esque species kind of way. Yeah. With a suggestion it's eating frogs. Hmm, yummy. Which, I don't know, that all tallies up with something that's in this family, right? Keelback? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's about about all we can say about it, really. Beautiful, beautiful, uh, crispy snake. Crepuscular and nocturnal, so uh, it doesn't like the day. Hmm. It does not like the day. Yeah, I think that's about all we can say. So, yeah, welcome to uh, science, <laughs> as they say. Hebius igneous. Really catchy name. Mm. No, I like um, and I think that's about it. You got any other business? Uh, no, no, I don't no. think so. No, nor me. Just, uh, just to quickly say, uh, thanks very much to all the people who are our patreons. Um, it's really massively appreciated. Uh, it's quite a few of you now, and it's yeah, it's really, really, really great. It's um, nice to have the support, and we're very, very grateful. So thank Super you. Super grateful. It's brilliant, actually. Yeah. Um, and if you want to become a patron and uh, support the podcast no pressure but you can go to patreon.com slash herphighlights and if you want to get in touch with us you can email us herphighlights at gmail.com we're on social media and uh, yeah I think that all remains to be said is thank you for listening yeah thanks for listening 